Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. My name is Shannon Riley, and I'm here to talk to you uh, once again about the world's greatest playwright, William Shakespeare. Now, as I've said before, I'm not a scholar. I don't claim to be a scholar. I just happen to be a devotee of the great writer. I love his works. I love his plays. I love theater. And my pleasure to come and talk to you every Sunday on the 8th to talk a little bit about the works of William Shakespeare. Also, before I go any further, I just wanted to remind you that I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to hear from anyone listening to this. If you want to reach me, you can reach me by email at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts about the show or things you'd like me to follow up on or questions you might have? I'd love to talk to anyone. So please give me a shout. And while you're at ShannonJRiley.com, Check it out. Take a look at some of my plays, some short films and tweets, and consider maybe producing one of those plays. Hey, I also got to tell you about Lady Shakes, our all-female Shakespeare company right here in Topeka, Kansas, which is in rehearsal right now, doing a bang-up job on an all-female production of Midsummer's Night Dreams set to be performed May 29th in a park near you here in Topeka. I'm really excited about it. Some really, really talented people involved in this show, and, and every week they just blow me away. And we hope you all get out there and support this new and unique theatrical treasure. I'm also very excited to say I got my first shot. I'm going back to work. Theaters are reopening. It looks like we're finally pushing past this pandemic, which I'm really excited about. Doesn't mean the dangers are over, certainly not by this point when I'm recording, but I'm excited because it really does feel like we are reaching the end. And I'm particularly excited about my theater, the Topeka Civic Theater, reopening. So if you're in the Topeka area, or any area. Matter of fact, just support your local arts. Get out there and support them. We've had a heck of a year and we need more support than ever. So please consider doing that. All right. So we're talking once again about the works of William Shakespeare and I am up to his Henriad. That's his second tetralogy devoted to four history plays. They concern Richard II, which I talked about last week. This week I'm talking about Henry IV, part one. Uh, next week is Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and we close with Henry V. These four plays are the pinnacle of Shakespeare's historical work. We are seeing here a playwright who is becoming to know himself, know what he's capable of, and really reinventing the genre he is writing in. And I'm blown away by this play, this series of plays, every time. I take a look at them because they tell history in a very contemporary way. They pull us in. 
We are very moved and involved in this story, much more than on his first tetralogy, which was Henry VI through Richard III. So I'm really excited about this play, but to start it all off, we always stop for a moment and enjoy... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, Shakespeare's quote of the week. And our quote of the week is, the better part of valor is discretion in which the better part I have saved my life. Act five, scene four. Better part of valor is discretion. So many phrases of Shakespeare still live today and we use them. As a matter of fact, I think I've said before, but it's been estimated that everybody in the Western English speaking world quotes Shakespeare at least once a day. They just don't know it. But we're gonna talk about Henry IV. And I wanna depart a little bit from how I've been doing this lately. What I I've, what I've tend to do is tell you the synopsis of the story of the play, and then go back and do analysis after our break and talk a little bit more in depth about some of the story behind it. But I'd kinda of like to shake that up, at least this week. I wanna try something. I wanna tell you the synopsis of the play, but talk about the acts individually, because what we're seeing here is truly a unique play. Even from Richard II, which was done just a couple of years before, this play shows tremendous growth. This play was probably written no later than 1597. It was around in that area. And what we have here is a play that picks up on the history and life of Henry IV. But here's the shocking thing about Henry IV, part one and two. They're not really about Henry IV. He's in it. He has several scenes and he has lines. And his story is important. But the real story here, and it wasn't even recognized until much later, the real story here is in the birth of Henry V as Hal, the misbegotten prince, the prodigal son, the man who's off hanging around with drunks and whoremongering when he should be learning rules of state. And at the top of the play, Henry is very disappointed in it. But we really follow the life of Henry the fifth through Prince Hal, his younger version. But there's also something that happens in this play that changes the course of not only Shakespeare's writing, but the course of his company. And that is the invention of the character of Falstaff. No character in Shakespeare's canon took on as much a life of its own as Falstaff did. In fact, the only reason we can date Henry IV, or one of the easiest reasons why we can date Henry IV, is because of all the imagery and poetry and writing about the character of John Falstaff that came afterwards. And oddly enough, Falstaff wasn't the original name. The original name was Oldcastle, and I'll talk about that too. But let's talk, first of all, let me give you a quick synopsis of Act One, and then we're gonna play with that a little bit. First of all, the play opens up, Henry IV is being dragged down by the thought that he is not rightfully king. In Richard II, he deposes Richard, takes the crown from him. By the way, he resents doing it. He tries not to do it twice during Richard's real life. But eventually, he has no choice when Richard II takes his title, takes his lands after his father dies, and he returns to England, raises an army, and takes back the crown from Richard II and claims himself king. He was not the next in line of succession, but he takes it. And this not being next in the true line of succession is a thing that drags Henry down and will throughout his entire reign. He is afraid that someone will usurp him just as he usurped Richard. 
And at the top of the play, there is a growing concern of a battle coming for the crown. He learns that Mortimer, the Earl of March, has been captured by a Welsh rebel. He doesn't like Mortimer. Mortimer was possibly the next in line for the crown before Henry took it. He doesn't like Mortimer and his family at all. He doesn't trust them. Well, in the meantime, the Scots have invaded in the north and they've been taken by Hotspur. Henry Percy's his real name, but he goes by Hotspur. Isn't that a great name, Hotspur? I think the two favorite names I have in Shakespeare are Hotspur and Touchstone. I just love those two names. Anyway, Hotspur is gallant, defiant, strong. Shakespeare plays off that he's young, about the same age as Hal, and he's kind of the yin to his yang. Truth is, in real life, Hotspur would have been an older man, but nevertheless, it works perfectly for Shakespeare for Percy to have a foil in Hal and vice versa. Now, Hotspur has captured the Scottish insurrectionists and is holding them prisoner, and the king has demanded they be returned to him. And Hotspur's men say, no, not unless you ransom Mortimer and get him away from the Welsh. The king refuses, and Hotspur says, then I will keep these men myself and raise the money to ransom him myself. The king does not like this. Any other person would be dragged off into prison, but Hotspur's dangerous. He's got a lot of men behind him, and he's a heck of a fighter. In the meantime, we meet Hal, and we meet Hal in a bar, waking up Falstaff, this old drunk knight, Sir Jack Falstaff. Now, shortly after he arrives, Pons arrives, who's another ne'er-do-well, and who suggests that they all need money, particularly poor old Jack Falstaff, so why don't we go mug these pilgrims who are traveling through the wood? They are loaded down with gold. They'll be easy to rob. So Falstaff agrees to do it and entreats Hal to join him on the robbery, and Hal says, why not? Let's do it for fun. And off they go. But then points pulls Hal aside and says, what do you say we play a practical joke on Falstaff and we show up late in disguise and rob Falstaff? Henry says, you know, as a king, I can't really do those sort of things. But as a prince, it's my chance to play in these loose activities for a little while longer. And he agrees to the plan. Now, here's the first thing that I want to talk about in terms of the change of Shakespeare and his writing here. No other history has as much comedy in it prior to this point as Henry IV, Part One. By the introduction of Falstaff and the fellow ne'er-do-wells that live in the, the Boar's Head Inn that uh, Hal frequents, we see a whole dichotomy of people in London's underbelly. And it's hilarious. In a way, this is a relation to old morality plays of the 12th, 13th, and 14th century. English people would have been very familiar with these morality plays where virtue and vice stand against each other. And Shakespeare uses this broad idea of virtue and vice, this virtue of the royalty and this vice of the people in the street and these robbers play against each other. And you know right away who you should root for. But Shakespeare does a very unique thing. He puts a virtue in the hands of Hotspur, who he will cast as the villain. And he puts vice in the hands of Hal, who would grow to become the greatest monarch of the English crown. Henry V was revered by Elizabethans, still revered by English people today. He is seen as one of their greatest kings ever. But the birth of Henry V is being treated here as a young man who's a miscreant, a troublemaker, who hangs out in very bad places, and his dad does not like it. This vice 
in the hands of the hero and this virtue in the hands of the villain is a wonderful and unique dichotomy which must have blown the minds of the Elizabethan audience goers. Now we open Act 2 to Falstaff and Bardolph and a few others robbing those poor pilgrims who immediately give up a lot of gold to Falstaff. Now they hold that money for a very short period of time before out from the bushes comes Hal and Poins in disguise and immediately these men drop their booty and run for dear life, including Mr. Falstaff. So they collect this money and proudly go back to the Boar's Head Inn. Shortly after they arrive, they play a couple of cheap practical jokes on a poor man who's working there. And then Falstaff arrives with his men, furious and angry, tells the story of how he was besieged by multiple men who tried to kill him and steal the money he had rightfully earned. He is furious that he was so let down by Hal, who did not show up to help guard him and protect his back. Hal lets him blather on about all the people he fought until finally he could fight no more. Until Hal eventually tells the truth and says, It is I who robbed you. It was only two men and you guys ran away like great big chickens. There's a moment of pause. And then Falstaff says, I knew it was you all along. I couldn't possibly hurt the Prince of England. If I did, I would go to the gallows. This is a sign, again, of the quick wit of William Shakespeare writing these characters, this dim-witted knight who is so intent on surviving that he can come up with, as fast as he can, any idea to cover up being caught in a lie and to protect his virtue. Shortly after that, a sheriff arrives saying the prince is wanted back at the palace and he needs to report to the king. Hal doesn't leave right away. Instead, he plays a game with Falstaff. Well, a game where they play what the meeting might turn out to be. First, he has Falstaff pretend to be the king, and he pleads his case as Hal, and Falstaff talks about the virtue of the wonderful John Falstaff that Hal has been hanging out with. Then they trade roles, and Falstaff becomes Hal, and Hal becomes Henry IV, who chastises him for the fat and horrible old man. And here's the next really neat thing about Falstaff. Falstaff then gives this beautiful speech he says, banish all, banish all in the kingdom, but not sweet Falstaff, not sweet John Falstaff, who loves his Henry so much. It is a very touching speech and it shows his vulnerability. This is really a unique play. Again, I want to promote The Hollow Crown, a great video series. It's got these four plays, fun to watch, really engaging. We're going to talk more about this on the other side. This is, we're up to Act 3 of Henry IV, Part 1, written by William Shakespeare. And we'll be back after this short break. Right here is where I would say, now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So, for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. Hello, hello again. And welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio. 75live.com. My thanks to everybody at KSEF for letting me come on 
every Sunday on the 8th to talk about William Shakespeare. It's always my pleasure. Thank you to Greece uh, for making this possible. By the way, if you've missed any of my past episodes, and God forbid that happen, they are archived right here at KSEF. And you can catch past episodes. They're also being archived at my website, ShannonJRiley.com. You can catch all the past episodes. I'm a little behind posting because I rely on my beautiful bride to help me do that, and I'd be lost without her. So thank you, thank you, Alex, for doing that. And the other exciting thing is you can now find ShannonJRiley.com, thanks to Carice and KSEF, on Apple Podcasts. Wherever you buy your Apple Podcasts, you can find Shannon's Shakespeare Sunday there. So I'm really excited about that as well. Okay, we're talking about Henry the Fourth, Part 1 today, and we were up to Act 3 when I stopped for a moment and took a break. Act 3 opens with the building rebellion. The forces are coming together to fight Henry because he usurped the crown. They're being led by Hotspur, of course. Henry Percy is his name, and he is also joined with Glendower and Mortimer. Now, these three people meet, and obviously they are not getting along. This virtue that Hotspur once enjoyed is being replaced by rage and an urge to fight battles. They decide to split up the kingdom that Henry rules into three parts, and Hotspur does not like the size of the part that he is being given, and the other two call him too greedy. So there is obviously some problem in communication among the rebel forces that is already brewing. In the meantime, Hal comes before his king, and Henry IV does not hold back. Immediately he berates his son for his company he keeps, the things that he's been doing, and how he would have had a better son if Hotspur had been his child. Henry is demoralized. He feels terrible. He actually is repentant, and promises his father that he will repent and become the son he has always wanted him to be. And in fact, he will go to battle, and he will fight alongside his father, and he himself will take on Hotspur. His father is not incredibly impressed, doesn't believe it will be true, but takes him at his word and allows him to raise a force. Hal returns, oddly enough, to the boar's head in uniform and immediately commands that John Falstaff, also known as Jack Falstaff, John Falstaff put on his armor and gather together his own men for the coming battle. (laughs) Of course, he's terrified, but he won't show it, not to Hal. He orders a breakfast and says he must go to battle. So now we see Virtue being returned back into the Prince Hal. He has changed. He seems to be driven, protected. But the old Hal is not gone. He knows that Falstaff can't lead a battle, and he knows darn well he's not going to let him. But he decides to toy with the old man, kind of torture him a little bit more, and command that he goes into service. He'll make sure he stays far away from the battle, but he'll want him to be involved in the fray. Act 4 finds trouble within the rebel encampment. Hotspur, Henry Percy, is awaiting the arrival of his father, Northumberland, to come and fight alongside his allies. Unfortunately, message comes that Northumberland is ill and cannot arrive. Wooster, fearing that the absence of Hotspur's father will show that he is not supportive of their mission, causes him to be concerned that their whole fight is already lost. But Hosper says he's ready to battle, and he's ready to battle now. But before he can engage the enemy, message comes that there are three columns of the king's men heading their way. One is being led by the king himself. The second one is being led by Westmoreland, one of the king's trusted advisors. And the third is being led by Prince Henry, Hal himself. 
He is astride his steed and rides like feathered mercury, riding viciously, strongly into battle. This does not deter Hotspur, who goes to engage him. Now on the road to the battle, we run into Falstaff and his lack of a better word, army. They are ragtag, pitiful rascals. They wander along, barely able to keep one foot in front of the other, carrying farm implements as weapons. They barely have enough to eat, and nobody is aboard a horse. It is in this time where we hear the message of virtue once again come up, and it comes up through Falstaff. Falstaff has some really beautiful speeches in this. He talks about what is virtue? What is the good of that? Does it help a dead man? When a man is known for virtue on Thursday for dying in battle, does he know it? Does he feel it? No, he's dead. He doubts the reason for bravery. He doubts the reason for fighting. We see a true glimpse of Falstaff's fear of mortality and how mortality and virtue seem to go hand in hand in medieval England. In the meantime, we meet up with King Henry IV who regrets any crime he ever committed, who feels remorse for having deposed Richard II, and who thinks he may be heading in pay for his sins into this battle. He said at one point that he would be content to stay as Duke of Lancaster, but instead he took the crown, and Henry IV shows genuine fear of his own mortality as well. Henry IV sends Wooster to Hotspur's camp to sue for peace. Wooster arrives, explains how the king is feeling remorse for what has happened and how he would like to sue for peace, Hotspur denies him and sends him back to the king, saying there is no way but the course of battle ahead. Act 5 finds us back in the king's camp, and Wooster tells the king that Hotspur has refused his suit for peace, and he blames the king. He lays it completely at his feet, saying, you're the one who took the crown. You should not have done it. You should have allowed the proper succession to go on. Prince Henry, though, is undaunted. He says, perhaps we can settle this whole thing if I meet Hotspur myself in battle, and we'll see between the two of us who shall be victorious. Henry, however, is more optimistic, and he even says the phrase, every man shall be friends again. He thinks there's a way out of this war without bloodshed, but there isn't. The die is cast, and the battle is ensued. Hotspur, of course, is led into battle directly against Prince Hal. They fight, and of course, Hotspur loses. And as he loses, he even talks that Henry himself, that Hal himself, had stolen his virtue, that all of his good deeds will now go to him as he dies. Turning around in the battlefield, Hal sees the lifeless body of Falstaff. His men had been involved in the fray, and he says goodbye to his dear friend before heading back to the king. Falstaff sits up. He faked his death. He didn't fight at all. He just didn't want to die, so he pretended he was a casualty as early in the battle as he could. He finds the dead Hotspur, declaims, maybe I can tell everybody that he woke up after Hal left. I really had to kill him. He stabs him again, picks him up, and carries his body after Prince Hal. On the battlefield, one of the rebels, Douglas, kills one of the king's men, Blunt, thinking it's the king himself. But when he pulls off his helmet, he learns that the king has sent many people into the battle in his colors, so that knowing where the king himself really is is more problematic. Douglas goes to hunt him out, and he finds him. Douglas and Henry begin to fight. Henry is victorious, and many of the rebels' leaders are captured. 
Henry demands death to Worcester and Vernon, and they're executed. But Prince Henry demands peace and mercy for Douglas, and Douglas himself is saved. The play ends on a cliffhanger. The battle is not over, the fight is not yet won, and the war continues as we move forward to Henry IV, Part Two. This was an immensely popular play, even in Shakespeare's time. Now, I've said this before, and every time I say something as if it's fact, I'm hoping it is fact, I end up eating my words. I've said before that when you wrote a play in Elizabethan England, you didn't rush it to publication. Once you memorize it, you want to keep it in your repertoire and be able to play it over and over again. They tended to rush only those plays that they didn't care for that much to publication. Well, this is the exception to the rule. They loved this play. It was highly successful. So successful, as a matter of fact, they did rush it to publication to make more money off of selling it. It was published, get this, in 1599, 1604, 1608, 1613, 1622, 1632, 1639, and 1692. It was so popular, it kept being published and published and published again. It was not necessarily for the same reasons that we enjoy Henry IV. We see it as a story of a young prince, Prince Hal, who is redeemed on the battlefield, returns to good graces, and eventually becomes the great King Henry V. The Elizabethans didn't see it that way. They saw it as a charming, funny story about a guy named Falstaff. And this success of this character of Falstaff really overplays everything. Oddly enough, his original name was John Oldcastle. John Oldcastle was a real person, and he was actually an early Protestant martyr. And naming him after John Oldcastle, as Shakespeare did, he did a dangerous thing. He not only had descendants who were very powerful and still around, who would not necessarily like the idea of their ancestor be treated as a fat old buffoon, but also John Oldcastle was a Protestant martyr. So the name Oldcastle had to be removed. How long it stayed John Oldcastle, I can't tell you, I don't think anyone knows. We do know that it was changed to John Falstaff because there was a John Falstaff who was in these, this battle, who was kind of portly, and who indeed had no descendants. So he was perfect. We'll just take this guy and we'll make this name the name that we use. But Oldcastle seemed to stick in contemporary audiences' mind. First of all, it's mistakenly not changed in a couple of places in the folio. We still see the word old rather than fall right before the, his line is spoken. So it's obvious that the name was changed. They just didn't have spell checker and didn't check it everywhere. Secondly, you see it used in the play The Merry Wives of Windsor. This is how successful Falstaff was as a character. Even Queen Elizabeth was so taken in with Falstaff that she purposely asked Shakespeare, give me a comedy with Falstaff in it. And he wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor, one of his most original plays. But even in that play, there was a moment where he reveals his name by saying the word, oh, 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 goes to Oldcastle, not Falstaff. So the idea of the name Falstaff and Oldcastle being synonymous with each other might very well have been the case in Elizabethan England. Today, we remember Falstaff, but we also need to remember that it made the career of one of the greatest Elizabethan comedian actors of all time, Will Kemp. Will Kemp was already making a name for himself among the Lord Chamberlain's people, but by playing Falstaff, he played his most iconic character, and it went to his head. 
This will be the marking of the end of his association with Lord Chamberlain's men. He becomes so successful as a comic, he doesn't want to work with them anymore unless he gets a bigger piece of the pie and they say no. And that meant, eventually, Shakespeare has to kill off Falstaff on stage. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. I'll talk about that more as we get into Henry V, but next week it's going to be Henry IV Part Two as we continue this story. I hope you like talking about it this way better where I give the synopsis and talk about the play as we go along. I find it a little bit easier to keep my thoughts all together. I really thank you for tuning in. I hope you had a great time. This has been my pleasure to come to you and talk to you about Henry IV Part One, and we'll see you next week on Shannon Shakespeare Sundays. But until then, keep it barred to the bone. This is Sean, the poet, and Stoke Poet and the Fool. Uh, listen to us on the 7s, AM, PM, FM, 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 LF, DM, DM, DM us if you want to listen to us on the AM and the PM and the FM, FM. Bye. <laughs>